0: Morning, across all of our sites. My name is Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. Actually, I'm the executive pastor over sites and discipleship. And uh, what that means, of executive pastor over sites, means that I have the privilege of working with our phenomenal lead pastors in Calgary, in Surrey, in Langley, too, and very soon to be in Coquitlam. Which brings me to not an announcement, but an encouragement. We, on on April the 7th, are launching our next village site in Coquitlam. And why that's important is because Pastor Marco and the team are still looking for volunteers, unpaid servants who want to get in on the ground level. And why that's important for you listening, whether you're in Calgary, Langley, or Surrey, is God might actually be asking you to take a step greater in your faith and be involved with the ground level beginning of another village site. Some of you are serving in great areas, but it'd be great to serve at a greater level of leadership and there's some opportunities there. We're looking for great children's ministry workers, youth workers, all that kind of stuff. And uh, especially Calgary, I heard you got lots of children's workers, so if you wanna throw a few over to Coquitlam, we would love that. Pastor Vin, I'm sure you'd appreciate that as well. But anywhere else, we'd love you to consider that get a hold of Pastor Marco and uh, be excited about that. I wanna invite you to 1 Corinthians chapter five. I'm actually going to begin in chapter 4, verse 21, where I want to set the emotional mood for the message this morning. First uh, Corinthians chapter 4, verse 21, uh, Michael Chinchella preached on it a couple weeks ago. It's a very short verse. Goes, it sounds like this. goes like this. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love or uh, uh, with a spirit of gentleness? This morning, in other words, do you want me to come to you with a stick and come in hard, or do you want me to come in with a pot of tea and have a discussion? And my hope this morning is I actually want to come to you like dad or grandpa and have a family discussion, because I have the privilege of unpacking a difficult topic, but I want to do it in a very sensitive way, like a family discussion. It's a sensitive topic. It's very easy to understand. It's a little harder to implement. And we want to jump in on it. And actually, I'm going to go back over the same passage that Pastor Mark preached last week. Pastor Mark last week preached on 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he focused in on sexual immorality and what exactly that is, what it looks like, the impact in our lives and the impact in our church. I'm going to go back over the exact same passage, but we're going to look at it from a different perspective. And the perspective that I want to look at it, namely, is this. What do we do as Christians people who name the name of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, what do we do as Christians when we see another Christian living in ways that are inconsistent with Jesus Christ and the Word of God? What do we do? In other words, what do we as Christians do when we see another brother or sister living or walking in what we would call sin? What do we do? What does God expect us to do? If you're a skeptic joining us this morning, I'd actually love to know what you think. What do you think Christians should do when they see another Christian living inconsistent with what we understand Christianity to be? If we remember the context of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians as a whole, it's it's a letter by the Apostle Paul who planted that particular church and he's writing to address a number of questions that the Corinthian, Corinthian Christians were having. Talking about unity, lawsuits, marriage, divorce, remarriage, uh, chaotic worship services, and things like that. And in 1 Corinthians chapter five, it's like a detour and the Apostle Paul says, let me just address for a minute an issue that you didn't even write about in your letter. It seems like you weren't even concerned about and we we jump into chapter of uh, verse one of chapter five it's actually reported. in other words you guys are all worried about you know which faction which leader to to follow who's more spiritual than the others what do you about lawsuits marriage and all that kind of stuff very important stuff but paul says listen guys it's actually reported i'm hearing the word it's on facebook it's on your social media it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that doesn't even exist among people who are not christians you surprised. The horror and the apology just kind of leaks out of his origi- original uh, opening there of chapter 5. In other words, he's saying, you guys know about this. You can't claim ignorance. Everybody knows about this. You guys know this is wrong. Everybody know this, knows this is wrong, whether you're a Christian. And then he says, a guy's living with his stepmom. And for us to get a little bit more of the cultural impact uh, of that, I've got to change the data a bit because now in our culture, outside the church, if someone was living with his stepmom, if there was a divorce between the father and the mother, and the guy chose to live with his stepmom, culture would say, as long as they're consenting adults, not hurting anyone, that's okay. But what if he was living with his 14-year-old stepdaughter in a sexual relationship? That's kind of the situation. Even people outside the church would know that's wrong. And so Paul's wondering, how is it that you, this spirit-filled church, can be living and arguing about, all who's right or who's more spiritual, and have this going on right in your midst and being totally silent about it? Verse 2, and you guys are proud. You guys are arrogant. Ought you not rather to have mourned? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In other words, this was a no-brainer for Paul. This is not something that should, should be ignored at all. In fact, Paul's thinking, according to Matthew 18, and he probably got his church discipline or his church confrontation from Matthew 18, which says, if a brother sins, go to him privately and talk to him and say, listen, I'm noticing this is out of whack in your life. If he doesn't agree with that, then take a couple of their people that they respect and you respect and say, listen, we're concerned about you. This is out of whack in your life. If he doesn't listen to the ones that he respects, then tell it to the church. Why? For the sake of prayer. Why? For the sake of asking God to work and convict this guy's life because this is going to destroy him. And then if he doesn't even listen to the church, then actually expel him. That's what's called church discipline. And that's what Paul's actually talking about. He says, I've already passed judgment. We've got to deal with this. This is how you guys should deal with it. How is it that this didn't even dawn on you? Why is this not even on your radar? And he he said to, in verse five, he says, For I have, though absent in body, although I'm not there, I am present with you in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on this guy. And when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present and in the power of our Lord Jesus, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, what I want you to do is I actually want you to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. And I know if you're a skeptic, if you're coming to village church, you say, that's just weird. Why would you do that? What does it mean to even deliver over someone to Satan? In fact, Christians even wonder, what does that actually mean? That's a weird concept. And frankly, it's offensive. Isn't the church supposed to love everybody and accept everybody? What catches my attention as I read that passage is, how is it possible that this Spirit-filled and very blessed church would actually allow such a blatant offense to go on unaddressed? How how do you think they did it? Well, the scholars uh, brainstorm, because they don't really know. They brainstormed, why, why was this even allowed? And some scholars suggest that the man was a man of money. And so they didn't want to confront him because they would lose the money. Some people think that he was a man of political power and to go up against and confront someone with political power would have a consequence against you and you didn't want to ruffle the feathers. The reality is that we don't actually know, we can't actually figure out from this text why exactly the church let it go. So let me bring it down to a more relevant and important question for us this morning. Why do we? Why do you? When we see, I'm talking to Christians now, when we see another brother or sister Walking in a way that we know is going to be destructive, knowing that God says that's not a good idea. Why do we remain silent? Why do we not address it? Talked about that with a couple of millennials in the office on Friday, and we were just brainstorming and got a couple ideas from them, but I'd already thought of them. I was kind of grateful that they, they thought the same. The first one is that we're intimidated. It's a little bit intimidating because we live in a culture in which in which we say, how I live my life is really my own business. And that's really, really what we believe because five of our top values in North America are individual freedom, independence, privacy, acceptance, and tolerance, equality. And so we, we actually Christianize this. We have a value in society that says how I live my life is my business. We've actually Christianized this, and it sounds like this. How I live my life is between me and God. And it's amazing how biblical people get, who are living in a way that's unbiblical, it's amazing how biblical people get when they're they're being confronted. And one of the most, one of the favorite passages we bring up is, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. And another very favorite passage would would be um, how do you, how can you look at the speck in someone else's eye when you have a log in your own? This is Luke chapter 6. How can you even see that? Why do you say to your brother, you know, let me help you with that speck in your eye when you've got a log in your own? You hypocrite and no one wants to be called a hypocrite. So we're a little bit gun shy and we don't want to speak into someone else's life. Second reason I think is because we're confused. Because I just read two passages of scripture That say that we really shouldn't be speaking To other people's lives And then I'm telling you here That the apostle Paul thinks we should So let me clear up a couple of misunderstandings That first verse that says Let him who The first passage that I just quoted Let him who has no sin cast the first stone Give me the context of that Jesus was in John chapter eight. Jesus was in the presence of a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. In other words, the religious people of that day—they were actually trying to trap Jesus. So they set up this whole adultery affair, and they caught her in the act. This wasn't because she was pregnant. They caught her in the act. In other words, they would have got a man to somehow seduce this woman, and the guys would be behind behind curtains or something—I don't know—but they caught her in the act, and they bring her out humiliated. And they said to Jesus, "Our law says that we should execute." What do you say? Jesus began writing in, in, the, in the sand and people think that he was writing the Ten Commandments and then Jesus stood up and said, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. Sins like they actually wanted this woman to die. They actually There was deception involved. And what Jesus was doing was calling out her hypocrisy. And then after all the people left, Jesus looked at the woman and said, where are they? Does no one condemn you? She said, no. And he says, neither do I condemn you. But then he confronted, he says, go go stop sinning. See, it's true that we're not supposed to condemn. That's totally true. We're not supposed to condemn at all. But it doesn't. you can't use that passage to say that we're not supposed to confront sin in each other's lives. In fact, we desperately need it. How about the other verse that says, those of you who've got a log in your own eye, look like this. How in the world are you going to see? In other words, if you're blind, you can't see a thing. How in the world are you going to help someone take the speck out of their eye? You hypocrite, and we forget the rest of the verse. It says, first take the log out of your eye so that you can see clearly enough to help your brother or sister with the speck in their own eye. You know what we do sometimes in relationships, your husband or your wife or your your son or your daughter or your parents, they confront something in your life, they say they notice something and say, well, what about you, Dad? What about you? And what we're saying, until you are Mr. and Mrs. Jesus, don't speak to, to me about my life. And so we're intimidated, but the goal there is, Jesus actually pleading, actually first get the log out of your own life so that you can see clearly enough to speak into your brother or sister's life. In other words, according to Jesus, according to God, according to the Apostle Paul, according to the Bible, how I live my life is not just between God and me. It's between God and me and us. Another reason why I think we don't speak into people's lives is we're afraid. Because if I speak into your life about something going on in your life, what if you speak into my life? And if I've got things in my life that are a little bit out of whack, I'm a little intimidated. And I don't really want to speak into your life because I know there's sin in my own life. Listen, If there is, for example, pornography in your life as a father, what's the likelihood you're going to help your son, your 18-year-old son, work on the purity in his own life? If there's issues in your own marriage, bitterness, unforgiveness, raising voices, temper, indifference, what's the likelihood you're ever going to speak to someone else about their marriage? Almost none. If you're not honest with your money or your dealings and someone else is dishonest, what's the likelihood you're going to challenge them? Almost none because you've got things in your own life and we're afraid. We're actually even afraid to build a culture in which we actually share with each other what God is speaking into our lives, what he's wanting us to change because what happens then if you ask me to change it? And a lot of us want to live our lives and we still have the belief that how I live my life is between God and I. The Apostle Paul, about a month ago or so, I preached on the passage of Scripture where Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, don't judge anything until the appointed time. And now he's telling us to judge. So what's the deal, Paul? We're confused. We don't understand. And what he's saying, here: there's two different kinds of judgment. When it says, don't judge anything before the appointed time, not to judge other people. That's the Diocrino kind of judge. That, that's the kind of judgment where you make a conclusion. It's like you've decided all in the facts and now I making a conclusion so that I can pass sentence. It's the type of judgment a judge does or a jury does after they've heard all the, all the evidence. They pass judgment and then they pass sentence and they begin to treat you a certain way. And Paul says, that is wrong. We're not supposed to do that. However, this is a different type of judgment. This is the, just looking at observable behavior and saying, listen, I'm concerned for you. Something's out of whack in your life. This is not how God's asked us to live. And that's the kind of judgment that Paul's asking, actually asking us to make. Where my message gets a little bit trickier for me and for you is the fourth reason I think that we don't speak into other people's lives when we see them going away that's going to be harmful. And that's that we just don't care. We're indifferent. I said at the beginning of my message or earlier that we can't really tell from the text why the people didn't speak into this person's life who was living with a stepmom. I lied. I think the answer to that is hidden in verse 2 in the question that Paul asks. Let me read it again, see if you pick up on it. It's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you in a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to have mourned? ought you not rather to have mourned? As I read that passage, I looked at that, and I looked at that word mourned, and I had to ask myself, Ken, when was the last time you mourned when you saw a brother or sister that's a Christian living in a way that is going to be harmful to them and to the body of Christ? Or Ken, when's the last time that you actually mourned because of a sin in your own life? Because a lot of times what we do is we jump right to repentance and changing the behavior. But why is it that we don't mourn? And I thought about what the word mourn means. And why, why do we ever mourn? We mourn when we lose somebody, right? You don't have to teach someone to mourn when they lose a spouse after years, if they lose a daughter or a son, or they lose a parent. You mourn because something of value is gone. Something that you once talked, someone you once talked to and held and experienced, they're gone. Or you mourn the loss of a dream, or you mourn the loss of health. Something that you had once that you experienced was taken away from you. So what would we mourn? What do we actually lose when a brother or sister among us is living in what we call sin. Let me define sin for a minute because a lot of times we wonder, what's the big deal about sin anyway? Why is God even so against sin? Well, sin is something sim- and what, what even puts an activity or an attitude in the sin category? You ever wondered that from God's perspective? What makes something sin and what makes something not sin? Well, sin is simply a category of actions or behaviors or attitudes that is harmful to yourself, harmful to others, or, dis- or harmful to the reputation of God. That's what sin is. If you think about any of it, think, think about it in an affair. Who does that hurt? It hurts you because you violate your commitments that you made. You stood before um, others and you made promises. It hurts you, it hurts your integrity. Plus, we all know, anyone that's been through a divorce knows it's incredibly uh, powerful, it's very, very painful. It hurts you, it hurts the people around you. It'll hurt your wife, it'll hurt your children. It will hurt the reputation of the church. If that's the way people are, make commitments before God and witnesses, why would I want to follow that God? An affair hurts a lot of people. What does anger burst? What is that? does that affect? It hurts you. It doesn't make you happy. When have you been happy and angry at the same time? It hurts the person. You have the anger. You take it out on someone else. And it hurts the reputation, the power of the church. See, see sin is simply that category of behaviors that is harmful to you, the community, and to God. or to his reputation. What do we lose? When we sin, what do we lose when someone else sins? Why was Paul, think about it, this was one of the most spirit-filled churches, at least in the Bible, all the spiritual gifts that we're gonna talk about in a number number of months, a number of weeks, and they're spirit-filled, they're talking, they're great leaders. How does this spirit-filled church, apparently spirit-filled church, why did Paul mourn and these people not mourn? In my own quiet time, I've been having a study on the life of Paul and actually going through the book of Acts. Something happened with Paul when he became a Christian. See, Paul Paul knew the power of politics. He knew the power of money. He knew the comforts of wealth. He He knew what religion was all about and he was very tenacious. And one day he was traveling. In fact, Paul was very religious. He was very committed to God. One day he was traveling and he gets knocked off his mule or his horse in Acts chapter 9 and a voice spoke to him from heaven. It says, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's words were very interesting. He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? He recognized that he was in the power and the presence of God Almighty. And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And that changed everything for Paul. See, Paul never understood that Jesus was Lord. He knew who Jesus was. He never understood that Jesus was Lord. He was worshiping Yahweh. He was worshiping God. He was doing all the religious things. He was doing all the, but he didn't know that Jesus was Lord. And when he realized Jesus was Lord, that changed everything, but he was still blind. And then the Lord said to him, go into the city and you will be told what to do. Three days later, a man named Ananias came and he laid hands on Paul and he prayed for him and the Holy Spirit fell upon Paul and all of a sudden, Paul heard the voice again. See, very interesting. Paul's kind of like us. Paul never saw Jesus Christ in the flesh personally, like the other twelve apostles. He's more like us. He never saw him, but he heard God's voice. He heard Jesus' voice on that road when he was knocked off his horse, and then when the Holy Spirit fell upon him, he realized that's the voice. That's the voice, and he realized that the Holy Spirit is also Lord. Second Corinthians chapter three, it talks about uh, talks about the, the, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. A number of years ago, I used to travel um, for a Freedom Session International, and everywhere I would go, they would always sing that song, Where the Spirit of the Lord is There is Freedom. But they never completed the verse. The Spirit of the Lord is There is Freedom. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And I realized that some of us have grown up and have never realized that the Holy Spirit is actually Lord and we've never really developed that personal relationship with the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul knew him. He knew him personally and he knew that there was a power in his relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that he would never get from religion. He knew that there was a fulfillment that he would never get from money, never get from wealth. He knew that there was a meaning and purpose and it was something internal, it was something tangible, it was something spiritual, it was something real that he would never get from business, never get from power, never get from his talents. He was baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. It's very interesting. You notice in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's talks, it's, uh, Paul talks about, I'm going to come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I'm going to find out the talk of these arrogant people, and, but and I'm going to find out what kind of power they have. And he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4, I've already read it, he's talking about this person that's living in sin. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Lord is present, you are delivered, this man, over to Satan. He's realizing there is a spiritual power. There's something real. About, it's not just about psychology. The Christian faith is, is more than just talk. It's more than just a set of rules. There's something tangible. There's something spiritual there. There's something real. And when we sin, when you and I walk in sin, or when we allow people in the church to walk in sin, there's two things we lose, and they're connected. We lose the power, and we lose the presence. Let me, let me explain that. We lose the power. And I fear that some of us actually grew up and have never experienced the power of the Holy Spirit of God living inside us. Some of you are living in very difficult situations, and only the power of God is going to change us. Some of us are living in difficult marriages, and you've tried all the things, you've tried all the things to do, but unless God Almighty changes the heart of your spouse, nothing's going to change. Some of you yourselves are living in shame, you're living in guilt, or there's fear, there's things going on in your life and you've tried all the things to do. But unless the power of God breaks through, nothing's gonna change. And when, when Paul says, we're gonna turn this person over to Satan, he was actually expecting that the church had a bit of power, but one of the problems is, if we would to, to send some people out of the church, I wonder what they would think that they're losing. And some of us have grown up in charismatic circles perhaps when we've talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the filling of the Spirit and we're so focused on the expressions of the Holy Spirit. We forgot what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about. It's about the Holy Spirit of God actually coming inside of us and becoming Lord. Let me explain to, to some of you who don't know what actually happens when you become a Christian. A couple weeks ago, a number of our staff were at a conference called Multiply, and one of the speakers was talking about how a lot of times we speak assuming that people know. And it dawned on me that I'm not sure some of you have become Christians in the last few years actually realize what happens when, that, when we invite Jesus Christ to be Lord of our lives. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says the Holy Spirit comes as a depositant. And when we invite Jesus Christ in our lives, actually God Almighty in the form of the Holy Spirit actually comes and takes residence in our lives. And some of us think that that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. I don't personally. I think the Holy Spirit comes, but, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit actually becomes Lord of our lives. When we invite Him to take over and the Holy Spirit's a gentleman, He will not take over areas of our lives that we don't invite Him into. One of the things we lose when we walk in sin and we let other people walk in sin, we lose the experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that the Apostle Paul didn't want to lose and so he mourned. Ought you not rather have mourned? The greatest fear in my life I experienced back in, I think, 1998. And I experienced for six months and I was a pastor. This is the greatest fear of my life still. If I would ever lose the voice of the holy spirit again i've been a pastor for a number of years and i set out to plant a church and we planted a church and we had right motives my wife and i we sacrificed an awful lot to plant that church in fact we had the same village vision that village church has to reach skeptics with the love of jesus christ and as we planted that church somehow over time it became more about me needing to prove myself me needing to be successful than it was about me and my wife doing it together or even reaching the people. And God did some great things in that church. Some people became Christians, some people grew in their faith. But about two and a half years into that, I no longer could hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I've been a Christian for a long enough time that I know you got you know, ebbs and flows and I'm not so weirded out. If, if you know, all my quiet times aren't incredibly meaningful, Sometimes I read a passage of scripture and I don't really get what God's saying and I got to pray about it. And, but, but when you lose the voice of the Holy Spirit for about six months, you become afraid. And I don't think I wasn't a Christian at that time, but what I had allowed is pride to get in my life. And, we and my wife tried to warn me and I told her she wasn't as spiritual as I was. And I lost, my wife lost confidence in me to hear the voice of God and I lost confidence to hear the voice of God and I never want to be there again. And what I find in my life today, one of my greatest motivations for trying to keep my life clean before God is because I never want to lose that voice again. I never want to lose hearing that voice. And I'm not saying the Holy spirit left me. I don't think he left me, but I couldn't hear him anymore. And what, God's, what the Bible tells is when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us. That's God, that's the voice, that's the only part of God we actually have here on earth. And, and he wants to fill our lives, he wants to be Lord of our lives, he wants to be Lord of our marriages. And when we sin, it's like, and this is my terminology, I try to make things understandable in, in, from a human point of view so that I can understand them. It's like the Holy Spirit of God, rather than filling me and living through me, and rather there being power in my life, power in my prayers, a fulfilling sense of his presence, comfort, courage, confidence, boldness, it's like the Holy Spirit has to kind of cower, not because he's afraid, but because he grieves, he mourns, there's sin in my life that's destroying me. One of the reasons why why pornography is not not attractive to me is because if I look at that, the Holy Spirit of God has to look at that. If I raise my voice to my wife, the Holy Spirit of God has to live inside. I can't claim to be spirit-filled and be yelling at my wife or yelling at my kids or walking in pride. I can't be cheating on my income tax and, and claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what's gone also is the power. The power of God's gone in my life. The prayers aren't going to be answered. Why? Because if God really came down and really began to work in my life, he'd have to put pressure on my sin, but I don't want him to deal with that area of my life. And the Bible talks about quenching the Holy Spirit and grieving the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the things that happens when we sin and when we allow other people to walk in sin. That's why it's so important for us to, to, when we care about each other to just share with each other what God is saying in our lives. It's one of the reasons why we have community groups at Village Church is so you can actually share what is God saying to you? What is he asking of you? Not to condemn, but to come alongside each other and pray and encourage each other and hold each other accountable to become the kind of men and women God wants us to be. Go back, back to the text here. It says, when this man, this man, I want you, when the church is together and you're praying in the power of the Holy Spirit, we want you to hand this man over to Satan. Have you ever prayed that prayer for someone? Because what you're really praying there is, is when you have someone that's not listening to us, who's not listening and they're going away, that's going to be detrimental to them and to the witness of Jesus Christ and the power of the church. He wants us actually to allow Satan to have his way in that person's life and begin affecting his life and so the person's life is falling apart. Have you ever prayed that prayer for someone that you love? I have prayed that prayer for someone that I would give my life for. There's a real power. We We actually, Lord, okay, Please bring this person to a place of repentance. Help them to feel the consequences of their sin. Help them to feel the consequences of what's happening in their life so that they repent and come back to you. Why? Because we love them. And that's frankly the reason why we put discipline in the church. That's why we put discipline in our, in our families, isn't it? What's the purpose of discipline? Well, discipline's the fine art of putting superficial and imposed consequences in someone's life, temporary consequences, so that they don't feel the full effects of their sin or their mistakes. One of the, one of the things that we used to do with one of our children who wouldn't eat, wouldn't eat their meal in the high chair, still as a little, little girl. Won't tell you which one, but we only have one daughter. She, she wouldn't eat. And and, and so we put a discipline, what we actually did, we put an egg timer there. And we just put it on, and, and she would just watch it. As soon as we put the egg timer on, she'd start shoveling her food in. Why? Because she didn't want it to go ding. Nothing would actually happen if it did go ding. Why did we do that? Not to torment her, but we knew that if she didn't eat her food, she wouldn't get healthy. If she didn't eat the right food, she wouldn't get healthy. Why do we put discipline in someone's life if they don't go to school or they don't do their homework? Why do we withdraw privileges? Because we know if they don't learn that down the road it will be costly. Why would we put discipline in someone's life? Because we know that down the road if they keep going the track, it'll be costly to them and those they love. How are we going to actually apply that as a church? Are we actually going to draw someone in front? And, and like in the old day, uh, Pastor Mark, when I was talking to about this text, he says, tell some stories. And I was thinking, well, I don't have any good stories of how church discipline actually worked. Back in the day, we, you'd have church discipline, typically you'd hear it when a 15 year old girl was pregnant and you would, people would bring them in front of the church and they'd have to confess their sin, sin's not being pregnant. That didn't work so well. I suppose it was a bit of a fear for the other girls but I'm not sure if it curbed any immorality. I was talking to Pastor John about this, and he said uh, he remembers one time that they brought a guy who got drunk. And they brought him in front of the church. He had to confess that. And John and I were talking about it and thought, what's going on in that guy's mind? He's not never going to go to that church again. One of the other problems we have is by the time, you know, in fact, a church of our size, we're not going to bring someone up on stage that's, lived a certain way. Of course we're gonna confront it as leaders. If we have someone in our our church that claims to be a Christians living in a way that's detrimental to the body of Christ and to our witness, of course we're gonna confront it. But I think what we need to do is, is back the truck up a bit and begin practicing this in our daily relationships one of the first things we have to do is is learn to mourn sin in our own lives. How do you do that? How do you actually mourn sin in your own life? You have to first identify it and then you actually have to ask, I think, have to ask the Holy Spirit to help you feel the consequence, to help you feel the pain of that, to help you see how it's going to hurt you, to help you see how it's going to hurt other people. And then I think what we've got to do in our relationships with other people is, is we have to develop a life of community in which we actually share with our brothers and sisters or our husbands and wives what God is saying to us, what we understand God asking of us. And we actually ask them to pray for us and with us that we would actually make those steps so that we could become the kind of men and women God wants us to be. And then actually invite our husband and wife, or our friends, or our accountability partners, whatever we want to do, actually invite them to check up on us and to speak into our lives. I got, got an email from a friend of mine from years, he prays for me almost every day, I think. He emailed me a little while ago, and, and my, I was on his heart and mind, and he asked me, am I taking a daily, a, a weekly rest? Am I taking a day off? And he said he was concerned about me. And I didn't want to respond back to him, because I hadn't been taking a day off recently. But somewhere along the line, I had built a relationship with him and we actually invited each other to speak into each other's lives. I think that's what we actually need to do again before we get to this, this church discipline part where we bring the person publicly, where it's going to have power because, because some of us some of us are living right now and our marriages aren't going well. Some of us right now, we've got shame, we've got guilt in our lives. And one of the reasons we're living that way is we're not sharing that with anyone and, and asking them to help us grow. And even right now, as I'm saying this, some of you say, I'm not telling anyone this. the danger for you is you're not going to feel the presence and you're not going to have the power. And if we allow that to go unchecked as a body, we're not going to feel the presence and we're not going to have the power. And so as I looked at this, and I know it's important to come up with the policies and all that, But unless we get this at the grassroots level, I fear some of us will continue to live a powerless Christianity, and I fear that the prayers that we have for the people that we would like to become Christians aren't gonna be very effective because there's sin in our lives and the Holy Spirit of God has to retreat. This summer, I preached a couple messages on authentic living. And authentic living, sometimes I tease people or I joke, you know, I wrote a little course called that and everything, but sometimes authentic living is overrated, <laughs> I say. Because sometimes authentic living is, is embarrassing. I'm the kind of guy that likes all my ducks in a row. And especially when I preach, I like all my ducks in a row. And for me, my sermon has to make sense before I can preach it. Well, this week, it's not because I didn't prepare, but I've been studying this passage a long time. And I only had the first half of my message. It still doesn't make sense to me of how to land the sermon. It still doesn't make sense. But I wanna come as a father and as a brother as a grandfather. For some of you who've accepted Jesus Christ and have never asked the Holy Spirit to make himself present, not to make himself present, that's not even right, to speak, to have his way in your life, to begin putting pressure on your heart and your life when things are out of whack, when you're going away in your marriage or your life or you're watching things or you're taking little concessions I'm asking you to invite the Holy Spirit to be Lord. I'm asking you to turn certain areas over your life to the Holy Spirit and, and ask Him to take control. Ask Him to guide you. Ask Him to let you feel His emotion. Ask Him to convict you of what's wrong and feel it. And more not out of condemnation or shame. But because there's so much more that you could have. I'm asking us as a church in our community groups to go a little bit deeper. To go a little bit deeper in in the sermon like even this week. What did God say to you? What is God asking of you in your relationships? Like literally down and dirty. Get the men in one corner and the gals in the other corner if that makes the sharing a little bit better. What actually is God Almighty saying to you? What are your fears about doing that? And how can we pray for you? And then come back the following week and say, how's it going in that area of your life? You see, this guy didn't start sleeping with his stepmom just from following the Lord, worshiping, and leading a community group to living with his stepmom. There's things that happened along the way, and perhaps no one spoke into that and said, I'm concerned, I'm concerned, you and your wife aren't getting along, I'm concerned with all these kind of things, I'm concerned you're not worshiping anymore, I'm concerned, go. what's God saying to you? And a lot of us have things in our lives that we've done that we, we never would have ever considered us doing over time, because no one spoke into the little areas of our lives, because we weren't honest with the little areas of our lives, the little concessions. So that's all I'm asking us to do today. So, we don't get to the place where the Apostle Paul or someone else says, how, how is it that you didn't mourn when this happened? How did you let this go? I don't want to get to that place. I want to help lead us to become the kind of church that speaks in little ways. What's God saying, and how can we come around you to make that happen? Lord Jesus, I'm grateful that you didn't leave out some of the delicate passages in Scripture. And I'm grateful that you want us to mourn when when our friends are going away that's gonna be detrimental. I'm grateful that you want us to mourn when we're going away that's gonna be detrimental. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have said you wanna fill us and indwell us and give us your emotion. Help us to feel that, not at a condemnation, Lord. I know that there's things in our lives that you cry over. And we've got so casual about that, we've left that go. i ask you to bring that emotion back to us. Help us to see that it's painful for us. It's gonna be painful for those around us and it's, it hurts the witness and the power of your church. Lord, I thank you that there's nothing we can ever do that causes you to love us less. Thank you that every mistake we've made, every sin we've committed has already been paid for. Now we're asking you to bring to our minds and our hearts the sins, the mistakes that we're living in right now. They're not gonna cause us an eternal separation from you, but are causing us a current separation from the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The love, some of us feel lonely, Lord. Some of us feel like you've abandoned us. We renounce that as a lie. It's that we haven't invited you into those areas of our lives. We've abandoned you. Lord, I'm asking you to perform that miracle again to take your written word, your spoken word And make it ream a word in our hearts that we hear your word to us today. And we invite you, we ask you to help us live it out. In Jesus' name.